Truth Espresso, Episode 29. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Does the writer to the Hebrews teach that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God incarnate in human form? Hi, my name is Daniel Minnick, and welcome to Truth Espresso. This episode is continuing a series about Jesus Christ, the theology of Christmas, as I began talking about the attributes of God, how they are complete and perfect and equal, and how that leads to the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one being, three persons, one what, three who's. And how that doctrine ultimately leads to a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. How that Jesus Christ, while being in the form of God, emptied himself by taking on a second nature, that of humanity. So if you haven't listened to the last few episodes of Truth Espresso, I would highly recommend that you do so to form the context of this episode as we will get into Hebrews chapter 2. I would like to just take a little tour through most of Hebrews chapter 2 and really dig deep, really look into the verses. In the episode before the last episode, we discussed what is called the Carmen Christi of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, particularly verses 5 through 7. And we saw the doctrine of the incarnation there as we really looked at Greek words and Greek phrases. So I would hope not to scare you away a little bit. There's a little bit less of that in this episode, but we will definitely get into a few Greek words and we will look at phrases to see how Hebrews chapter 2 teaches the humanity of Christ, not just that Jesus Christ is a human being or just the greatest human being that God ever created, but that Jesus is the divine Son who became incarnate. Yes, I believe that Hebrews chapter 2 is an incarnation passage. And since the episode before the last episode was about Philippians chapter 2, clearly showing that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the divine Son, I believe that there is a lot of similarity between Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 2. Some similarities that we can note between these two chapters are, number one, both of them clearly teach incarnation. And that is what I want to get into with this chapter, to show that despite protestations to the contrary, 
Hebrews chapter 2 really does teach the pre-existence of the Son of God and that the humanity is incarnation. So, number one, both passages, Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 2, clearly teach incarnation. Number two of note, both passages clearly teach humility and lowliness of the Son via the incarnation. Philippians chapter 2, we learn that We, as redeemed, as Christians in the body of Christ, we should treat each others as equals. Well, we should treat each other better than ourselves, and therefore we are all equal, and that the divine Son, as our example, as Christ Jesus, humbled himself by submitting himself to what would be his equal, being God the Father, and then he humbled himself by taking on humanity and becoming obedient unto death, the death of the cross. And so we see humility and lowliness in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to see humility and lowliness in Hebrews chapter 2. And the third similarity of note between these two chapters of Scripture are that they both clearly teach dominion as a result of what Christ did. This dominion is specifically said to be given to Christ, but this dominion is actually promised in the prophecies of Scripture to man, to humanity. But we realize that humanity fell in Adam, and humanity has suffered and been slaves to sin as a result of that. So what happened to this dominion? We have dominion, we practice dominion, but quite imperfectly we have the dominion as but a shadow of what was promised and given as a command in the Garden of Eden. And so, dominion that we will have that is promised and prophesied is realized through Jesus Christ as our federal head. As Adam is our federal head in the fall, in sin, Jesus Christ is our federal head in perfection and obedience to the law of God, fulfilling the law of God, being the perfect human being, redeeming us and therefore allowing the saints to participate in the dominion given to humanity via Jesus Christ as the Son of God, attaining that exaltation on our behalf, and then we as saints reign with Christ. And so, the similarities between Philippians 2 and Hebrews 2, number one, they both teach incarnation. They both teach humility and lowliness, number two. And number three, they both clearly teach dominion as a result. And so that is reassuring to me, and I hope to you, as we see that this idea is something that is very emphasized in Scripture, that we have this promise to look forward to, that not only do we get forgiveness from sins via Jesus Christ, but we get to be what are called the sons of God in truth, those who get the dominion of God as God reigns on the throne 
and we are created in the image of God, that image is restored in Jesus Christ, who is called the image of God, the icon of God, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his character or his person in Hebrews chapter 1. And so that is something that I very much look forward to. In the last episode, episode 28, we looked at angels versus humans. And we saw that angels are greater than humans, at least according to their makeup, their ontology. But humans are promised dominion. So the last episode emphasized that we are made lower than the angels. Angels are much more mighty than we are, much more glorious. But they are ministering spirits to minister to those who would be heirs of eternal life, heirs of salvation. And salvation is not offered, as we could see in Scripture, to fallen angels, but it is offered and it is given to fallen humanity. And I demonstrated at least what I believe to be the case that human beings are created in the image of God, and this being created in the image of God is linked to the dominion promise, the dominion mandate that God gives us an extension of the dominion that he has as ruler over creation, and that by creating us in his image, he imparts to us some of that dominion. And as I just mentioned before, that dominion is restored and realized through Christ, our federal head, in redemption. So let's continue on going from angels as the basis for showing that Hebrews chapter 2 teaches that Jesus Christ is truly the incarnation of the divine Son of God in human form, the one person of the divine Son with two natures, divine Godness and humanity, perfectly human, lacking nothing, Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, and let's start to dig deep. Hebrews 2 and verse 5 says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Remember, this is a lofty thing to say. The Hebrew scriptures demonstrate a very high view of angels. Angels are something that when people encountered in the Old Testament, they had to be warned not to bow down and worship them. Angels would sometimes even terrify humans and they would have to tell them, do not be afraid. But the promise here that we're given in Hebrews 2 verse 5 is that God did not give the angels authority to rule over the world to come or the age to come, which I believe is a reference to the new heaven and new earth. But he gave that to humans. And the writer to the Hebrews is going to explain to us just how that is realized. Man has a promise, but how do we see how man or humankind will actually achieve that promise? Because we are in a pretty bad state, as we could see around us. I mean, would we trust the President of the United States to rule over the new earth, to have proper dominion over the world? 
given the pol- the political landscape that we see in the United States, which is supposed to be a beacon of freedom, that there's a lot of basically civil war in this country, you know, either you love the president or you hate him. And, you know, I just have to personally say I'm, I'm kind of a renegade in a certain way. My kind of extremely conservative, extremely libertarian, strictly constitutionalist. Well, you know, even sometimes I can be critical of the constitution that it is, you know, more status than I would like, (laughs) but you know, my understanding of things, I find myself not really appreciating pretty much any politician anywhere ever. So I'm not really a big fan of any president of the United States for that matter. So angels are not promised the dominion. And it's a marvelous, wonderful thing that dominion is promised and will be granted over a restored, regenerated earth, something that we can enjoy, something that will be even better than the paradise of the Garden of Eden that was given to Adam and Eve. So let's continue on. Angels not given this authority. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, But one in a certain place testified. This one is David. One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Remember, angels are a very important theme in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. They are something with which we compare humanity and see that angels are so glorious and so marvelous. But when we consider the angels, when we consider the creation, when we consider just how frail, how problematic humans are, We, like David, have to ponder and ask the question, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Verse 7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Verse 8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So keep in mind, you know, do we really see humanity subjecting the entire world under them? But remember, in context, this is talking about the world to come, the new earth. And we see that man is referenced in general. Humanity is generalized here with the statement that God has put everything in subjection to humanity. But we see clues underpinning this quotation from Old Testament scripture, from David as being a prophet, as functioning as a prophet, 
the Apostle Peter mentioned in Acts chapter 2 that David was a prophet as well as a king. And Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David, and he actually did sit on the throne of David as he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. But this promise is given to humanity to subject all things, all creation under him. So how is this realized? This was a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. This wording is also reflected in Psalm 144, verse 3, and also in Job chapter 7 and verses 17 through 18. So, as David engages in some Hebrew contemplation and philosophy, his ruminations, thinking about how God has promised and blessed man, promised and given him dominion, and yet made him a little lower than the angels. David's argument is the foundational argument for incarnation. He's speaking of humanity in general, But his ruminations will lead to the doctrine of federal headship that we see in passages such as Hebrews chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 5. So let's continue on with Hebrews chapter 2 and let's look at verse 9. It says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So let's just look at that. This verse repeats the verse before it. It repeats verse 7, quoting from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews 2, 7 says that humanity was made a little lower than the angels and was crowned with glory and honor. But now the writer to the Hebrews says, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor. So how do we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? I mean, I know that he was crowned with a crown of thorns at his crucifixion, but how do we see him crowned with glory and honor? Well, the disciples witnessed Jesus being ascended into heaven. They saw him glorified as he went up in a cloud into heaven. And then as they searched the scriptures and as the Holy Spirit gave utterance and brought to them remembrance of the Old Testament scriptures, as Jesus himself, even after his resurrection, explained the scriptures to them, then we see Peter in Acts chapter 2 at his sermon in Pentecost saying that prophetic scriptures were fulfilled when Jesus ascended to heaven and then he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the resur- the ascension of Christ rather as he went up to heaven was him ultimately by the Father's side taking the throne and ruling from heaven. And so that is how we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. But what does it mean that he was made a little lower than the angels? Now, some people might think, especially those with Gnostic tendencies, might just 
take that to say, hey, he was created as some kind of demiurge that was lower than the angels ontologically, and then figured out a way to free himself and exalt himself. But we have to understand that this phrase is intended fully to say that he was human. It is not that he was transformed into some lower middle creature. It is not that his ontology was reduced, like as the divine son of God, he wasn't transformed into some third thing or some anthropomorphic thing, something that only appeared to be human, but was some kind of superhuman creature like a superhero. No, this phrase, made a little lower than the angels, is exactly speaking to the fact that he is human. It is referencing the fact that David said that man, that humanity, is made a little lower than the angels. And so it's saying that Jesus truly was human. It's taking the description of humanity and poetically applying it to Jesus to say, in other words, he was made human. So this is applying the description of humanity quoted above in verse 7 to say that Jesus was truly human. Remember, Jesus wasn't an angel according to Hebrews chapter 1 before in verses 4 through 6. He did not become an angel, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. Further on in this passage, he wasn't some lower demiurge between angels and humans, as some Gnostic groups might pontificate. He didn't just appear human, as the Gnostics would say. He was made a little lower than the angels. This is a synecdoche to mean he was made human. So let's go on to the next verse in Hebrews chapter 2. Just think about it for a bit. It is saying that he was made human. Yes, I know we are all made human, but what is the intention of the writer to the Hebrews when talking about Jesus? Was he just made human the same way we were made human, such that our beginning of existence was at conception? I think not, and I want to prove that as we look into these verses in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This verse is saying that the Father, being the source of all things, willed that the Son would obtain our salvation through his suffering. This is interesting because we saw from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 in the last episode that this act of humility was a sovereign, voluntary decision from the Son. So what does this tell us? It says that 
Hebrews 2.10 says that the Father, the one for whom and by whom are all things, but we can see other passages that say that all things are by and through the Son as well. But the Father made the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. But Philippians 2.6 clearly shows in the Greek words that this humility of incarnation was a sovereign, voluntary decision from the Son. This shows that the Father and the Son perform different roles in the grand scheme of things, in salvation, in a covenant of redemption. They perform different roles and willful outputs, yet their faculty of will is the same. Their will, the will of the Father and of the Son, are in perfect harmony. And, you know, we might get into that in later episodes as we talk about things like monothelitism, you know. I'm hoping that if you stick with it and you listen to more episodes of Truth Spresso, you'll be able to explain what monothelitism is and all kinds of exciting, goofy, historical terminology. But I believe that the faculty of will between the Father and the Son, this faculty of will comes from the divine nature that they both share. And so the Son, as he is incarnate as human, then has two wills, the divine will that he shares with the Father and the human will, and that it was necessary even that he has a human will so that he can properly experience and be fully human under the law, obey the law as someone who is fully human, requiring a human will to subject himself. Continuing on, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and quoting from the Old Testament, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So let's look at some of these clauses, these phrases in these three verses. What does it mean by both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one? This is clearly an argument that Jesus is just as human as those he saves. So, the one who sanctified humans was himself human. You might want to think, well, duh, if the promised Messiah was of the seed of Abraham, of the seed of David, the seed of the woman, he would obviously be human and you'd be correct. But I'd like to point out that the writer to the Hebrews really seems to emphasize the humanity of Christ in chapter 2 here, as something that we should marvel over and not slip up about, which really seems to be an argument to me that the Son is more than just a human being. So, let's look at this next phrase, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This phrase, in my mind, really speaks for itself. The question really just begs itself. 
Why does the writer to the Hebrews put so much emphasis on the humanity of Christ if no one should have any reason to think otherwise? The Gnostics could be in mind because they reject the idea that Jesus was truly human. He could not rightly call us brethren if he were not human. But why is it saying this cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren and the emphasis is on the fact that he truly is human? Doesn't this speak to the fact that the Son chose to be human and chose to call us brethren? I would like to ask the Socinians, those who think that Jesus is only a human and not also divine, why would the writer to the Hebrews emphasize so much the humanity of Christ as if it, would, as if it should somehow wow us or be scandalous to our minds? The way these arguments from the writer to the Hebrews reads in these verses, a Socinian view of Christ would not seem to be in the writer's mind. Let's go to the next verse and see even more of this incarnation language. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part or partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Once again, why the need to emphasize that Jesus is human to save humans, if this is all he is and that there would be no reason to believe otherwise? In fact, the word for partakers, at least the, you know, when it says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, the word for partakers is a form of the word koinoneo, or, you know, you might have heard of koinonia, it means fellowship. The human nature is something with which we fellowship with each other via how we were created. However, when it says that he, referring to the Son, or Jesus Christ, likewise took part or partook of the same, that's a different word. That word for partook is a form of meteko. This word strangely only appears in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews. If you're one of those who tries to wonder about who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, this might be another one of those little textual evidences that the Apostle Paul might have had a hand or in the writing of the epistle to the Hebrews, since this word is unique and occurs several times in only 1 Corinthians and Hebrews. But that's a topic for another episode if we wanted to get more into that. But all occurrences of this word meteko seem to have a conscious participation and pre-existence of the subject, except for Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 13, which is about Jesus Christ coming from the tribe of Judah. But if Hebrews 2.14 that we just read is consistently clear that Christ voluntarily partook of human nature, just as Philippians 2.7 says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being made in human form, 
then this is more evidence that the Son of God was pre-existent and intentionally became incarnate. Also, consider a causal relationship between the two clauses in this verse. He partook of flesh and blood so that his death would destroy the works of the devil. That seems to be what this verse is telling us. Jesus is the subject of both clauses, and each clause shows an action that he performed. Partook is actually an aorist active indicative, and destroy, as in destroy the works of the devil, is an aorist active subjunctive, meaning that the intent of his death is to destroy the works of the devil. Partook of flesh and blood is the means by which he would die, which is clearly intentional and voluntary in the passage. And John 10.18 is also clear about that when he says, No man taketh taketh it my life from me, but I lay it down of myself, or I lay it down of my own accord. So if partook in Hebrews 2.14 is aorist active and destroy via death is aorist active and the latter is an intentional action, why shouldn't the former one be? He intentionally partook of flesh and blood. He was incarnate. This was voluntary. He pre-existed his conception in the womb of Mary. So let's continue the writer's argument by going to verse 16. Hebrews 2.16 says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Let's ask the obvious question. Couldn't this just mean that God decided not to create the Messiah as an angel, but rather as a human being? Well, you could understand that if you make this verse poetic. You see, the word took, that is twice in this verse, is very important. It is not a simple action that we can overlook or minimize. What is this word took? It is the Greek word epilambanatai. It is a middle voice participle form of epilambano. What is that? This word means to take hold or seize. It doesn't just mean to grab passively like I might semi-consciously grab my keys while heading out the door to work. It means an intensive seizure. It can mean grabbing and pulling like if your toddler were wandering away and you firmly grab an arm and pull him or her close to you to keep your toddler from wandering away and getting into trouble. It could also be appropriate for giving someone a big bear hug. So just think of this verse as saying that Jesus grabbed a human nature tightly so that it couldn't slip away, or he gave it a big affectionate bear hug. (laughs) Could this just mean that Jesus is a mere man, beginning his earthly ministry, decided to embrace his humanity and its limitations with gusto? No. It says that he did not embrace, seize, or cling to the nature of angels, but he embraced, seized, or clung to the nature of the children of Abraham. 
This is voluntary incarnation language on steroids. No occurrence of any form of epilambano in the New Testament ever means that someone was created that way. Also, if this just means that his disposition or passion was not to save angels but to save the seed of Abraham, why would he, if he were a mere human, have any power or reason to think himself to be on the earth to save the angels? There is no way to understand this verse as a Sicinian that would make any sense. And the language of the context in all these verses we've been looking at clearly supports incarnation. If we haven't already had a one-two punch for the idea of the incarnation of the Son, the next verse adds even more strength to it. Hebrews 2.17 Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This seems obvious enough from the English that we just read, but to silence the arguments of our incarnation-denying friends, we need to look deeper. So let's look at this phrase, or this clause, In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, or we could say, It behooved him to be made like his brethren in all things. It means that it was necessary that he be made human in every detail. Now, why on earth would this even be a concern if Jesus were simply created as a human born of Mary? Would a human-only Jesus have a concern with being made half-human or 90% human or whatever percent human? If he were created by his Lord to be human, then he's a human, plain and simple. So why is it behoove him to be made like his brethren in all things? Also, let's consider the word behooved. It is the word ophelo. It means to owe something, to pay, need to pay a debt, something that is owed. So how can someone who didn't pre-exist his own humanity have a debt to be human, if being human is something that he owes? No, he was made human voluntarily so as to perform this mission. That is the best way to understand this verse, especially in light of everything we have seen so far. Of course, the phrase, that he may be a merciful and faithful high priest, shows that this is the goal of being made human, to fulfill the debt owed. Yes, my friends, Jesus is truly the incarnation of the Son. It behooved him. It was a debt to be paid to the Father that he should be made like his brethren so that... He can be a merciful and faithful high priest. And now, the last verse of the chapter is a knockout punch for the doctrine of the Incarnation. It gives us insight to the experience of Jesus as human. 
So Hebrews 2, verse 18, the last verse of chapter 2, it says, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So let's ask the human-only Jesus question again. If there were no reason to expect him to be anything other than a human Messiah, why the emphasis on the fact that he suffered and was tempted? That's what humans do, at least this side of the resurrection and this side of the fall. That is what we assume any human will experience. This verse asks us to think deeply about the fact that Jesus actually suffered and was tempted, as if that were an amazing thought to consider. And it was because he was made human by taking on the nature of humanity He voluntarily, consciously performed the act of embracing, seizing, or grasping tightly to humanity to accomplish the divine mission. And since he suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to bring aid to or to help those who are tempted. Once again, Why should we marvel at this if the humanity of Jesus is a foregone conclusion for him as if he were created that way and only that way? Why would pointing out the lowliness of his human nature be such a clandestine thing? Perhaps if he truly is the divine son of God who became incarnate, As a lowly human, that is something to marvel about. He was made truly human by his own action. He embraced it fully, not just to appear human, but to live under the law, obey the Father, be subject to temptation, suffer pain and fear, and even die a gruesome death of sacrifice. There is every reason to marvel at the emphasis of this verse if we understand the amazing idea of the Incarnation. Only a doctrine of Incarnation, the Son of God taking on a human nature, actually provokes all the points that these verses have raised, all these verses that we have read. Why didn't the Son take on the nature of angels? He could have, but that wasn't the goal. Why didn't he just remain the divine Son of God? He could have, but that wouldn't destroy the works of the devil on humanity. Why did he take on humanity? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? to be a merciful and faithful high priest, to reconcile humans to God, to be the substitute for the sins of humans, as we will cover in the next episode. For his humanity and suffering is truly the means by which God brought redemption for humanity and could restore the dominion given to humans as being created in the image of God. And that, my friends, was necessarily brought about and could only be brought about by the incarnation of the divine Son of God.
Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.